I can start with the Eddic, which is uh, probably the poetry that more people are familiar with. It, it's uh, poems about either gods uh, or heroes, or legendary heroes, and some of the stories in these poems are thought to be really old, um, and uh, they were collected in Iceland in the 13th century, so we don't know how much older they were, but at least some of them were certainly older than that. And they either tell stories about gods and heroes, or uh, they propagate wisdom in some way or another. And these are these are anonymous. We don't know who composed them or when they composed them or where they composed them. Um, but they seem to have been quite widespread and people would know the stories. They're relatively easy to understand compared to skaldic poetry. Um, and probably there's certainly with regard to your earlier question, there would have been female poets composing Eddic poetry as well. Um, skaldic poetry is a completely different kettle of fish. It's a very complicated, highly developed art form with uh, a lot of rules regarding meter and alliteration and how you construct the poem. Um, and it's it can be used in, in for many different subjects, many different purposes, but we think um, or what we what we most commonly think of when we think of skaldic poetry is this kind of praise poetry for kings and chieftains, uh, which is a kind a form of propaganda form of history writing before writing was available. So uh, you kind of locked the facts into this very complicated poetry and that that made it easy to remember accurately. And a lot of it is about the achievements of the king. So battles he fought or voyages, expeditions he led. And then if, if you could remember the poem, you'd remember all the, the important facts about that king's achievements. Okay, welcome back to Vikingology. And today it is our very, very great pleasure to welcome Dr. Judith Jesh, yes, sorry, uh, who is Distinguished Professor of Viking Studies at the University of Nottingham in England. And she has a very long list of publications, including um, Women in the Viking Age, which is still in print, which is amazing after like 30 years. Um, and also uh, The Viking Diaspora, which is one of my favorites, I have to say. I really love that book. And also, you are you still working on a new translation of Orkneyinga Saga? That's my current project at the moment, yeah. yeah. Okay, so we'll look forward to that. But uh, So your research focus tends to be more in the language area, right? Although you've written widely about so many different things. And so, yeah, we'll definitely meander today a bit because I want to ask a little bit about a lot of things. But... Uh, language, skaldic poetry, and the runes. Um, well, uh, what uh, texts? Uh, texts in particular. I, I wouldn't call myself a linguist as such, but I like reading texts in Old Norse, whether that's poetry or inscriptions or sagas. Um, any of those? Yeah. Well, so welcome. We're so happy, happy to have you here. Well, it's nice to see you both. It's such a pleasure and an honor, actually. So. Um, well, you know what, to get started, I'm actually going to maybe ask what might seem kind of like a silly question, but I always ask this to my students and it's it's usually uh, kind of fun. Um, but if you had a time machine and you could go anywhere in the Viking Age, when and where would you go and why? Ooh, that's quite a question. When, where, and why? I think just, I haven't thought about this at all, so I'm, I'm not really sure. Um, 
I would probably like to go to either to London in the early 11th century um, to the court of King Canute, so I could hear some scaldic poetry being recited there. Oh, nice. Okay, because that actually, I mean, definitely is one of the questions I wanted to ask you about scaldic poetry. And I had a student even mention this um, when I was, you know, telling them this week that you were going to be on. And it's like, well, what would that look like? Is it actually, you know, sort of like theater? Are there more than one person involved? Is it just the poet reciting? Is there any acting out of anything? I mean, one of one of my students even said is like, there are there do they have wooden swords and they're sort of pretending? And I'm like, I don't know. I'm gonna ask her. Like, what do you think the whole thing would look like? Um, well, I think you have to start with the setting, first of all. So it would be some kind of communal setting, possibly a feast. Um, there would be the king or the chieftain in charge. There would be an audience because, um, you know, it's not worth going to all that trouble to compose that difficult poetry if there isn't an audience. Um, other than that, I, I'm not really sure what, what it would look like. And I, I imagine poets vary. Some of them would probably be more theatrical. Others might not. Um, I think it also depends on, on, on the audience. I mean, there's some scaldic poetry, for example, for English kings who might not have understood the Old Norse very well. And some scaldic poetry is quite easy to understand and some is really difficult to understand. So um, if people were serious about it, they'd be concentrating, <laughs> trying to understand what the poet is saying. And if they weren't that interested, they'd just be kind of sitting there and occasionally pick up on the odd word. I mean, it's a good idea if you're composing about a king to keep repeating his name so he, may, he, so he knows that it's a poem about him. Um, so, no, I, I'm not sure it was that theatrical. I think it was more of a kind of intellectual exercise for people who appreciated that sort of thing. So, all right, if they're sitting there, like, in, I'm imagining, you know, sort of the movie version, right, of the big feast mm -hmm. in the Mead Hall, and the, you know, and it's, it's 10. You've seen too many movies. Yeah, right. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I mean, it tends all to that be... kind of throwing of chicken drumsticks yeah, right. across the room and stuff. And... <laughs> okay, well, all right, well, let's just go with maybe just boisterous. How about that, right? And so are they going to be, I wonder, getting to a point like, all right, everybody, calm down quiet now, the poet is going to start, you know, or is he competing with all of the rest of it that's going on? I can imagine he he, he would be competing very often. Uh, they, they start with some kind of stanza uh, calling for a hearing, really, you know, they're telling people to be quiet. But I think uh, there's so much evidence that it was considered a, a, a really highly skilled craft that was extremely well rewarded i mean you could get a whole ship for composing a poem about the right king so i think i think the king would have made sure that people listened because otherwise his his money would be wasted really if people couldn't hear the praise in in, in the scaldic poem and we keep saying he do we know for sure that they were all male the poets yes um no there are one there are a few uh female poets not very many and we don't really know much about them and one or two of them might have been fictional um i think i think the pro i think certainly there were women who were able to compose in that genre but i think the profession of court poet was almost certainly a male profession okay 
So actually, maybe that too, I mean, we kind of dove right into skaldic poetry. And I think maybe for our audience, let's do a little bit of just, um, you know, the two kind of main forms of poetry that we know from the Viking Age between the skaldic and the Eddic. And can you explain a little bit about what those two are? Yeah, I can start with the Eddic, which is uh, probably the poetry that more people are familiar with. It's uh, poems about either gods uh, or heroes, the legendary heroes, and some of the stories in these poems are thought to be really old, um, and uh, they were collected in Iceland in the 13th century, so we don't know how much older they were, but at least some of them were certainly older than that. And they either tell stories about gods and heroes, or uh, they propagate wisdom in some way or another, and these are Relish, these are anonymous. We don't know who composed them or when they composed them or where they composed them. Um, but they seem to have been quite widespread and people would know the stories. They're relatively easy to understand compared to skaldic poetry. Um, and probably there's certainly with regard to your earlier question, there would have been female poets composing Eddic poetry as well. Um, skaldic poetry is a completely different kettle of fish. It's a very complicated, highly developed art form with uh, a lot of rules regarding meter and alliteration and how you construct the poem. Um, and it's it can be used in, in for many different subjects, many different purposes, but we think, um, or what we, th what we most commonly think of when we think of skaldic poetry is this kind of praise poetry for kings and chieftains, uh, which is a kind of form of propaganda form of history writing before writing was available. So uh, you kind of locked the facts into this very complicated poetry and that that made it easy to remember accurately. And a lot of it is about the achievements of the king. So battles he fought or voyages, expeditions he led. And then if, if you could remember the poem, you'd remember all the, the important facts about that king's achievements. So how would one go about training to become a skaldic poet? Um, we know a little bit about that um, from Egil Saga, for instance, a, a well-known saga. You you went to an older poet and you learned from him, I think. You know, it was a completely oral genre. Um, and it was very much unlike Eddic poetry, was which was in but not only anonymous, but possibly communal in some way that you know people anyone could add to an Eddic poem. The skaldic poet was very much the author of his own poem. Um, and we know the names of most of these poets as well, even if we don't always know much about them. So, uh, you know, they were highly trained uh, through talking to other poets. And then, of course, the Icelanders came along later in the 13th century, people like Snorri Sturluson in his Edda. What he's doing is, is that's a textbook, really, on how to compose Scaldic poetry. Now, forgive my my ignorance, but um, you know, in popular culture, we we talk about scalds a lot, and here we're we're using the word poets. And so, uh, could you illuminate us a little bit on why the precision and nomenclature and the difference between the two, and where should we be careful when when using those words, and can we use them interchangeably? Oh, that's a very interesting question. Um, I mean, I call them poets because that's what they are. They're, they're doing things with language in a way that only poets do things with language. Um, the term scold is the Old Norse term for poet. 
um, there's some discussion about what its origin really is. But what's interesting is that we have several runic inscriptions which mention people who are called scalds, but we don't know whether they were actually poets and there's no poetry in those particular runic inscriptions. And I think originally it may just have referred to someone whose job it was to, to kind of record information, record facts in an oral culture, um, whether or not they did that through poetry. Um, but by the time we're talking about when we have the sagas and the Eddas um, from medieval Iceland, then they use the word scold to, uh, about, as someone we'd recognize as a poet. And now, uh, just to understand if I've made a mistake in, in my novels, for example, uh, <laughs> did the scalds ever recite their poems in song form? <laughs> Since I talk about the scalds songs, which you, you hear, you know, this, this area of history is totally out of my depth, so I'm, I'm a novice here. <laughs> well, I, I'm completely tone deaf, so I'm not sure I, I, would, <laughs> I would know. Um, I, I don't think we really know. Uh, the poetry isn't really conceptualized as song. It's conceptualized as all kinds of things. There's this myth of the mead of poetry. It's conceptualized as a drink, so, something that flows from your mouth. Um, and uh, there's not really, I don't think there's any mention of musical instruments. So if you're thinking of, you know, Old English and the harp and, and so on, there doesn't seem to be any such thing going on. But it's possible that when they recited it, uh, they did it in a way that, that sounded uh, musical in some way. I don't really know. Unfortunately, it's one of the many things we don't know about in detail. Yeah, I have, uh, when I talk about language and art in my class, there's a um, video clip from uh, the University of York, where some of the language students there, I don't know if you've seen that, where they, they've they helped the, the museum there with, you know, mm -hmm. having, you know, some of the staff, you know, a little bit of Old Norse or whatever. So like, what is, yeah. what is the sound of the Vikings, you know, kind of thing. Um, and, you know, Right prior to that, I have them read an English translation of a stanza from Krakumal. And, you know, so they read it and they kind of understand what it's saying. Um, but then when they hear it and there's, you know, it's, it's not the same poem that they recite in that video clip, but when they hear it and they listen to it, it's kind of like, oh, now it sounds like poetry because when they hear the Norse version, it's like they hear, mm -hmm. even though they don't know the language, right? They, yeah. They feel the melodiousness of it and they they hear the rhyming of the of certain words and stuff. And so then it was kind of like, oh, it really clicked for them. Um, so the English translation kind of ruined it a little bit. <laughs> well, I think you're onto something there. I think if, if you've got rhyme and alliteration and all these metrical devices, you don't need music. That's my view. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I agree. I agree. So how long would these last, these recitations? Um, we don't, we have very few uh, poems that survive in their entirety because they were chopped up and, and referred to in the sagas as, as evidence. Um, but they, ooh, well, well, it's a stanzaic genre. So each stanza uh, in, in a, a standard scaldic drotkvite uh, stanza um, consists of 48 syllables. <laughs> so that's quite short. And you could easily have uh, 40 or 50 or even more stanzas in a long poem. I don't know what the longest one would be, um, but uh, as I say, we have very few that survive in their entirety like that. 
I think it it brings up for me an interesting um, thing that I also like my students to, to to sort of ponder, and that is, you know, telling them that we we don't have to commit anything to memory in the modern era, right? I mean, we just Google it or whatever, you know, look in all of those books that are behind you and find the information we need. And so we don't do that. And then to think about what it's like to, you know, pass along information in this way uh, for everything in, in an oral culture, it's, it, it, can you speak a little bit to sort of, you know, what kind of memories these people would have had? Well, well, the the uh, most obvious example there is is the laws. The laws of early uh, early Iceland tell us that the law speaker had to know all the laws and uh, recite them over a period of three years, so a third of the law each year. Um, and of course, by the time the laws are written down, they're no longer oral, so we don't know whether the laws were a lot shorter in the oral period. But that's a lot of stuff to commit to memory. Um, so that, yes, but I think the whole culture was geared towards verbal culture. So there's the laws, there's the poetry, um, even all the kind of names and nicknames that people had that, you know, it shows that they, they really appreciated language and, and the things, you, interesting things you could do with language. Yeah, I always wonder that about the law speaker, because I find that, you know, like that part, the whole all thing. <laughs> That up, I think, is really interesting anyway. But the, the the fact that the guy would do that and remember it, but then I'm thinking, okay, they don't have any fact checking uh, mechanism, in that <laughs> no. era, right? So it's like maybe he's remembering all of it, but they all just have to sort of take it on faith that he is, right? <laughs> yeah. yeah. Well, that, that, that well, that's where Skaldic poetry is actually. You know, it solved that problem with its very strict metrical rules and its very strict number of syllables and where you have to have the rhyme and the alliteration. And, you know, the whole point of that is so that you remember things correctly. It was really important to remember things correctly. Um, but, yeah, the, the laws are to a certain extent formulaic, so that possibly helps people uh, remember them. And I'm sure there were other people who um, other people knew the law. I don't think the law speaker was the only one who knew it. Um, it was just his job to remind people of what the laws were. So probably there might not have been fact checking, but there might have been someone who put their hand up and said, nope, nope, you, you haven't remembered that correctly. <laughs> so um, all of this, I mean, we're talking about this oral culture, but of course, you know, we mentioned also at a certain point it gets written down, both the laws and the, the poems. Um, and we often sort of say like, oh, well, you know, think about the sources very carefully because they were written down long after the events that they recount, right? Um, but where is the memory in between, you know? Like, what are the sources Snorri Thurlison's using, for instance, you know, to, to try to get at least some sort of faithful account maybe of, of what, you know, what they're writing about? Well, that's that's the $64,000 question. <laughs> that scholars have been talking about for generations. Um, there's a lot of things. I mean, the poetry is important for certain genres in particular, particularly the King sagas, um, precisely because they recognized that they were actually a source. They, uh, The authors of the King sagas cited these Goldick stanzas just like a modern historian would cite his or her sources in the footnotes. Um, for uh, a lot of saga genres, uh, genealogies are really important. That's another form of kind of verbal culture, a way uh, of remembering things in an oral culture. Um, and then, then there must have been uh, stories uh, and 
stories can be attached to particular places in the landscape, for instance. I think that is a good way of helping people remember every time you pass a particular burial mound, you say, oh, yeah, that's great granddad lying in there. And did you know that my great granddad killed, you know, a troll or, or whatever? Um, <laughs> so so putting all these things together uh, can then give you really quite a broad overall picture and then they fill the gaps with making things up basically. I love the fluid nature of that, I have to say. Um, I don't know. The fact that it can fluid in what way? Oh, I don't know. The just um, you know, I don't know, filling in the gaps as mm -hmm. they go. Um, you know, my students always say the telephone game, right? You know, kind yeah. of thing. Um, but I mean I I like that. I like that it's not so precise. Um, I, I just like the the malleability of it so that, you know, I think the, the kernel of maybe if there's some sort of, you know, maybe moral or ethical theme or something that's being trying to be relayed then that stays the same, but some of the details can be embellished. Um, I think it just kind of makes it an interesting art form. And again, it's something that we are not really used to here just because we can rely on text a lot. Um, I mean, the same I think has to do with the, the art, the, the, the like the visual art uh, and design that comes out of the Viking age and you know, trying to express to people you know, just how much you know how important it is to to put designs on everything even mundane objects because you live in this very immersive visual and oral world right i mean you just don't rely on text and so the fact that that can just be all um i don't know just very fluid and organic and changing from community yeah. to community and, and, so, and some of those some of that art also alludes to stories so that's another way of remembering stories is if, if you got pictures of them and actually within poetry um i mean the thing about edic poetry it tells the story but in skaldic poetry it doesn't really tell the story but it makes use of, of uh, kennings um which in themselves allude to mythological stories that we only know because Snorri wrote them down in, in his Edda. Uh, so it, it's kind of chicken and egg thing. People knew the stories. So you could use a kenning uh, referring to some mythological story, you know, for example, about the need of poetry. And everyone would know the story just from hearing those trigger words, mead, poetry. Ah, yes, that's uh, when they, they all spat in a vat together and um, and then made a guy out of it. And he was, and then they killed him and his blood was turned into mead. And, you know, there's a whole long story about it. And you just need to remember mead and poetry and that you've got your story, really. Good old Kvazir. I was just told yeah, that. Yeah. Story. I just told that story yesterday. I'm like, okay, this is what happens when you have a culture that's sitting around with nothing to do in the long winters in Scandinavia. <laughs> and they probably drank too much ale. And then all of a sudden there's a guy who's created out of spit and then dwarves kill him and create the meat of poetry. And then Odin like steals it from the child. It's like, oh my gosh, who, who could make this up? You know, you couldn't even if you tried. No, well, they did. They, yeah, yeah, they did. Yeah, yeah, they did. But, but without trying, I think it came naturally, as you say. Yeah, yeah. So, uh, so how much of the of the oral tradition was written down through runes? Uh, runes were limited in what they could convey. But yeah. How much? How much evidence do we have for those for that poetry direct as opposed to written down a couple of centuries later? 
Um, it depends on what kind of poetry and depends what you mean by poetry, I think comes back to your earlier question, because uh, not all verse is poetry. <laughs> um, mm -hmm. But we certainly have uh, rune stones, which are basically just memorial inscriptions to the dead, mainly from the 10th and, and 11th centuries, sometimes have a little verse uh, about the dead person. Um, and those are, you know, they're not verse that was known anywhere else they're composed for that person and that occasion so it kind of shows that people were familiar with these genres uh, those are mo mainly in what we'd call edic style so there's the kind of simpler form of poetry there is one scaldic stanza though on on the runestone from a place called Karlevi on on the island of Öland in, in in Sweden off off the coast of Sweden in the Baltic which is dated probably to around the year 1000 so that's a good 200 years earlier than the earliest manuscript recording of that kind of poetry. So, um, and there's other little bits of poetry in, in various kinds of runic inscriptions. So that I think there's enough there to show us that actually these genres did exist before they came to be written down. So there must've been loads that never came to be written down. We, you know, the, the, the authors of the 13th century selected the poetry that they wanted to uh, record. They probably made a little bit of it up as well. <laughs> um, it's not necessarily all authentic as such. Um, but yeah, so I think, you know, I think we can say with certainty and, and there, there are, um, if you think something like the Galahus horn um, from around the year 400 AD, it's got a, a little line of verse on it, um, which is, follows the same rules as Edic verse uh, many centuries later. So I think that there's quite a long tradition of these poetic forms, which are also related to Old English poetic forms and, and other uh, forms in other Germanic languages. So there is a long, long tradition for the poetry at any rate. Um, runes weren't really used to write uh, prose narratives though. Um, except insofar as, you know, it says so-and-so uh, put up this stone in memory of his father, such and such, uh, who, who died in Jerusalem or whatever. Or that so they, one that was found, there was an old prison that was uh, in uh, Istanbul. A re, uh, it was a pretty recent, I think in the last 10 years. And they found what they thought was a prison from about a thousand years ago. And there was a rune where there were runes carved into it. And I think it just said, it said something very simple, like Ivar was here, you know? <laughs> I, I don't know about any prison. Are you thinking of uh, uh, what was Hagia Sophia is now the, the Blue Mosque in, in Istanbul? And there is some Viking graffiti there, which does say half done. Yeah. yeah. Um, there we go. Yeah, it was something like that. Yeah, I, yeah. I'm not. I'm. I'm not remembering correctly, but I remember seeing something like that. Like somebody yeah, just left oh, no, some graffiti, the, and it was their yes. name. Like you know, I was here. You know, <laughs> absolutely, absolutely. And also, uh, one of my favorites is. Um, it, it's called the Piraeus Lion. So it was originally in Piraeus, the port uh, of Athens, uh, but then it was moved to to Venice, and it's outside the arsenal. So if you're ever in Venice, there's this lion it's a marble lion it's much older um i can't remember exactly but something like the second century or thereabouts and in the 11th century some swedes came along and carved a really nice design like like those serpents that you see on on rune stones they carved the same kind of design with their names and the name of the leader that they're following they were probably in the varangian guard on their on their way to to istanbul or wherever um 
and they vandalized, but in a really interesting way, <laughs> this lion. And, and actually it's been possible, the, the design they used for the several inscriptions on the lion, and one of the inscriptions has a design which is almost exactly matched by a runestone back home in Sweden. So they, they can even pinpoint where these guys came from on the basis of, of, of the one back in Sweden. Yeah, that's really an interesting case. I was just, coincidentally, sort of just a few days ago, I was looking at that again, and the transcription is pretty, um, you know, the they, I can imagine they're like standing there, like it took them a long time to write this. It's not a short little, like just, I was oh. here. No, it, no like, it's quite long, it's, yeah. It's, it's very much a praise little piece to yeah. one of the guys in their troupe, and, and even says yeah. Yeah, he was great, and he got a lot of gold, you know, wherever yeah. they were, and all of that kind of stuff. So, yeah, it's pretty... It's pretty interesting. Yeah, absolutely. Next time, next no, time somebody, so next time somebody comes around and and you know, I hear a lot of people when they hear that I'm into Vikings and they go, oh, but weren't they just murderers and pillagers and and I'll I'll be sure to add, oh, and also vandals and they left a lot of graffiti. <laughs> <laughs> That's That's certain. Like that. They no. left graffiti all over the place, actually, but then so did all kinds of other people yeah <laughs> that won't redeem them probably cj no well no um so there there is a little bit of poetic graffiti even <laughs> well i mean i think that that's kind of cool though i mean it definitely um humanizes them a little bit beyond just this sort of knuckle dragger warrior kind of trope that we have often you know in popular culture um so, I mean, that actually, it brings to mind something, you know, it's talking about sort of like Venice and, you know, some of these stones in Sweden and we've, you know, other places. Um, and we've asked this to some other people before. And so I'm curious about your thoughts of, as far as like the Viking age or, I mean, this is a vast world and they went do, 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 right? I mean, it's like, or are there many Viking ages sort of kind of going on at the same time over the course of those three centuries? Yeah, how long have you got? <laughs> I'm here all day. Uh, it's, that's a really interesting but complicated question. And I suppose in the end, uh, the boring answer is it all boils down to what you mean by Viking Age and how you define Viking Age. Um, because, you know, the thing I, I have to keep reminding myself, uh, even today, there's not a huge number of people live in Scandinavia. So, you know, and back then there were far fewer. So for a lot of people to leave Scandinavia and go to Greenland, to North America, to the British Isles, to the Mediterranean, to the Far East, um, you know, you'd empty the place. So uh, I think you have to then start thinking about the Viking Age as a period in which these people who left Scandinavia then kind of started various processes which weren't entirely down to them, but it might have involved other people that they got involved with, or, um, uh, or even just the local inhabitants were affected by these movements um, and what's going on. And it, it, you can't really have just millions of Vikings going off in every direction over a whole long period. Um, the other thing that people get very excited about um, and and annoyed and angry with each other about what, what are the dates of the Viking Age, because um, most people start in 793, the attack on Lindisfarne, but that's a completely Anglo-centric view of the Viking Age. Um, or when did it end? Did it end in 1066, you know, with the 
another Anglo-centric date uh, for the end of the Viking Age. Um, and of course, well, as a historian, you know better than I do that these periodizations are really kind of very, a bit abstract and they're kind of imposed on the past by, by modern scholars. So, I mean, what I like to look for is, well, what's actually going on? What changes are coming about? Um, who's doing what, where? Um, and possibly, you know, Viking expansion in the East, for example, might have different kind of chronological parameters than those going off to the West. Um, it's different if you're going somewhere that is fully inhabited, like England or Scotland or somewhere, rather than going to Iceland where there was nobody before then. So, um, and then the, the, the thing most people used to kind of indicate the end of the Viking Age is a number of things. First of all, there's a general conversion to Christianity. Secondly, there is the emergence of what we recognizably European models of kingship. Um, and the, uh, yeah, and with, with Christianity uh, comes also the habit of writing. So once you start writing, that, that is a big uh, conceptual change in life. And those three things, they go together, really. They support each other. Writing uh, supports Christianity and vice versa. The kings support the, the church. The church supports the kings. And then society is quite fundamentally changed. But this isn't something that happens overnight. So you could say it took, um, I mean, there's a there's a really good book by Olivier Steinson in which he argued it took about 300 years for Iceland to become Christianized. Mm -hmm. um, depending on how you define what Christianization actually is. So we can have fluid uh, understandings of the Viking Age. The most important thing, I think, is just to state what you, when you're talking about the Viking Age, state what you mean by it. And then um, you can you can mean whatever you like by it as long as you're clear about it. Yeah, for me, that brings up two things. One is to say the Vikings, the Vikings, the Vikings, but what we're really talking about is some Vikings, but otherwise like Scandinavian people who are just going out into the world, right? Um, I'm I'm in the camp of roughly 750 to 1100. Um, for That's uh, fine by me. Um... <laughs> But the, then also, the I mean, it begs the question of, you know, do Vikings define the age or does the age define Vikings, right? <laughs> I mean, I don't know. Well, uh, the most important thing, I think, is to use round numbers, because if you say 793 to 1066, it makes it sound like everything changed overnight in that year, and it didn't. Whereas if you say 1100, it's vague, you know give or take a decade this way or that way. Yeah. I really appreciate that when you're uh, uh, at the, you know, uh, you evoked this idea that Scandinavia is a small place and it's not heavily populated. So when we speak of so-called Vikings, there wouldn't have been that many of them, right? And so oh. their impact globally, you know, and, and it brings back uh, some memories of one of our first episodes with Dr. Matthew Panessi, who, uh, is a historian on monasticism in the ninth and tenth centuries in Western Europe, and it's the first and thing ninth. that he eighth and ninth. oh eighth, eighth and ninth centuries. Ninth. I apologize. Yeah. yeah, but he but his first thing was he's like I spent a whole career avoiding the Vikings because because <laughs> in terms of the broad breadth of how many monasteries there there were and the wide reach of monasticism etc. The Vikings were just a little blip, 
right? Yeah, you're, you're talking yeah, about yeah. two or three <laughs> monasteries getting hit out of thousands, right? So for them, they yeah. can just kind of say, eh, you know, and for me, it was really um, illuminating because I'm so hyper-focused on who are the Vikings? Who are these people that I, I feel like before that, I tended to overestimate their impact on the world when in reality, it was it, it, it was much less, right? It's just my bias because I was looking at one place, you know, but then when you look at it in the broad, broad landscape of the themes that were happening at the time, right? They're a small part, an important part, but yeah. But small, smaller than than people might think. I, I absolutely agree with you, and I, uh, but I think what's well, you started off by saying Scandinavia is a small place. It's small in terms of population. It's absolutely huge in terms of landmass. I mean, um, the thing I always trot out for my students is that the northern tip of Norway is further from the southern tip of Norway than Rome is from the southern tip of Norway, um, and that doesn't even include Denmark. Um, but getting back to what, what you were saying, I think um, the way I see it is, uh, <laughs> I've slightly lost my thread there. Yeah, it's it's not so much that they, they were very important in the grand scheme of things, because what they did is other people were doing as well, uh, and they interacted with global trends and, and, and other people doing things around the world. But what's interesting to me about the Vikings, at least in a European context, uh, is that they were different. Um, so when they interacted with mon monasteries or whatever, they were bringing their own kind of way of <laughs> looking at monasteries. Um, but they weren't the only ones who attacked monasteries. The Irish were constantly attacking each other's monasteries throughout this period. So um, I think to me, the Vikings are just interesting. I'm like you, you know, I'm hyper-focused on them. That's what I'm interested in. Um, but what their achievement was, was to just kind of bring a new tune uh, to all the, the kind of discord that's going on uh, around the world at the time. And I think a, 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 a theme of terror that europe hadn't you know because the irish could attack their own monasteries but they couldn't show up in rome no. the vikings could as we've discussed yes. previously in the podcast their ships they had a technology so we had pirates with a technological advancement that put them ahead of everybody else so yeah. they could they could just as easily show up right uh in northern norway with or rome right and and no one else could do that at the time i think that's what made them so shocking even though their impact may not you know i think Europe as a whole probably hyper focused on them too because it's kind of like that whole, uh, you know, um, I, I I hate to bring this up in a in a more academic discussion, but like in the in Family Guy, the show, yeah. <laughs> where, the, where Stewie promises to pay Brian back, you know, with the slap, and they spend like three episodes, you know, with with Brian in anticipation of the slap, right, and he just lives in terror because he doesn't yeah. know when it's gonna come. It's gonna come, yeah. but he doesn't know yeah. when. It's kind of like the Vikings are kind of like that, right? Like they're gonna show up. We just don't know when, we don't know where. So yeah. it, it kind of brings this new level of psychological terror to the people of Europe because then it's like they could they could show up anywhere. They show up at Paris, not you know, in Ireland. They even well, they almost Rome. And that I, I, I the, as the story goes, it was actually the city of Luna. Uh, yeah. and they thought it was Rome due to a navigational error. <laughs> so. No, so what, what you're saying is that they had an impact out of proportion to their numbers uh, for right. various reasons, including the ships and, and the navigational ability and all that. 
So absolutely, yeah. So you don't need many Vikings to, to have an impact. Although I think the terror was, you know, probably pretty much front front ended, right? Because we know from some of the sources, like it starts to get, and we even talked about that with Matthew Panessi, it starts to, the chronicle accounts are sort of, and the Vikings came again, you know, or the Northmen <laughs> came again, or the one that's my favorite, they came for their usual surprise attack, you know, it's like all of a sudden it starts to lose its steam when they could sort of bank on it, you know, they knew they were going to show up at some point. Yeah. But it does beg the question, actually, that we talked with Lesha Gardella um, in March about, you know, the Vikings in the Western Slavic lands and, you know, the whole lead in on the, on the episode, if you, if you watch it, the very first piece is how, and CJ saying, how did the Vikings change Poland? And Lesha just with a straight face just says, they didn't. <laughs> <laughs> and so, I, I mean, since you've written about diaspora, I mean, it does beg the question, you know, what kind of influence then do they have that's lasting or not in these various places? Well, it's different in different places is the short answer. Um, and because I live in England, you know, I'm very aware of, of the effect they, they had here in England. They had uh, certainly more influence in Scotland, in certain parts of Scotland at any rate than England. Um, they had a lot of influence in Iceland because there weren't any people there or nothing worth speaking of. Um, and then various other places, they kind of came and went. Um, as, as you say, they just kind of turned up and, and left again and didn't really change anything. But their experiences, even in those places that they kind of just visited and then came back from, um, I think, uh, also fed into what they were doing all over the place. So I think e each region, um, it, it's, it's an interesting paradox uh, that each region has its own separate history, and yet they are all connected um, in various ways because of the mobility of the Viking Age. Yeah, I did note in uh, in your diaspora book when you mentioned, you know, that the, the the most lasting or the place that exhibits the most lasting influence of the Viking Age is in Iceland still to this day. And, you know, as you know, we've talked before, I spend time there a lot in, in two or three years ago. Um, I wrote a piece about that because I was just feeling it everywhere when I was there, you know, and just interacting with my friends and other people, but going to the various sites. And it's like, I could just feel these threads of these things that we know about the Viking Age and how people were, and that you still feel it in the Icelanders or in some of these places. And 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 because it's such a deeply ingrained part of their cultural inheritance, it's like they don't even recognize, you know, that they're no. kind of acting that way. But there were all of these things, and it just kind of kept stacking up. So I was like, I have to, I have to write something about this because it just seems so so obvious um, there. But um, so then you mentioned, and I want to talk about this with the Orkneyinga saga because you know obviously Scotland is one of the places that the Vikings went. Um, and I think that you know, with the Anglo-centric part of it, even though it's part of the UK, I mean, people focus on the England aspect so much and don't really realize the islands and Scotland and how much of a presence the Norse had there. Um, I actually noticed that when the first time my husband and I went to Norway over a decade ago and we're like, why are all these Scottish people here? <laughs> you know, we had no idea of this sort of very close connection. Um, but can you speak to a little bit about that, sort of the, their presence on those islands and then also, you know, your interest in this particular saga and maybe how, what, what the Viking life was like there, maybe as compared to someplace like Iceland or someplace else? 
Well, well, it's interesting because, you know, I love Iceland and, and the sagas generally, and you go to Iceland and all the places mentioned in the saga are still there in the landscape. You'll see a sign saying, you know, Berkthorskvatl uh, is here, you know, straight from Saga, but you don't see anything else except the name or, or the landscape, but there's not much landscape description in, in Icelandic sagas. And then you go to Orkney, <laughs> and there are actually standing buildings or ruined buildings in the place uh, that uh, don't necessarily go back to the earliest Viking age. That, that For that, you need an archaeologist to dig them up out of the ground. But something like St. Magnus Cathedral in, in Kirkwall, built in the 12th century, um, <laughs> it's whacking great, beautiful red sandstone cathedral. It's been there since the 12th century. It's mentioned in the saga. There, you know, and people who say, oh, the sagas, they're just literature, they're fiction, you know, we don't need to take a, a account of them. Well, actually, in the case of Orkneyinga saga, you've still got the, that landscape and, and many of the places in the landscape, not just the names, but then um, also because they built in stone rather than turf, <laughs> uh, buildings uh, that survive, and, uh, and the language. I mean, Nowadays, they speak English <laughs> or a form of English we call Scots, which is uh, was brought to Orkney and Shetland in the early modern period by people from the south of Scotland. Um, but the Old Norse language was, it's hard to tell exactly when it died out, but there is evidence that it was in use well into the early modern period. And there's some little traces of it as late as the 17th or 18th century. Um, so the interesting question is, um, and this is another thing that's much debated, first of all, when did they arrive? Um, what happened to the people who were living there before? And uh, then how long did they keep speaking Old Norse there? Um, none of which we have a very clear answer to. You would think because of geography that they just came straight over from Norway and thought, oh yeah, here's Shetland, we'll stop here. Yeah, Shetland's okay, but there's some more islands down there, Orkney, they look a bit better, we'll go there. <laughs> um, but there has been some discussion recently that actually maybe the settlement of the Northern Isles was a little bit later than other activity in and around um, the North Sea, the Irish Sea, the English Channel, the kind of more southerly parts of the British Isles, which are perhaps uh, a bit more attractive, certainly to raiders and traders uh, rather than settlers. Um, but certainly by around 900, um, there were people of Scandinavian origin living in Orkney and Shetland and Northern Scotland. Um, and then they developed this uh, polity, um, which we can call the Orkney Earldom or something like that, which was uh, a part of Scandinavia until the middle of the 15th century. Um, it first belonged to Norway, but then Norway became part of Denmark. <laughs> um, so it ended up, uh, and then Denmark uh, gave it back to Scotland uh, in the 15th century. So, you know, it's part of Britain or the United Kingdom that wasn't British <laughs> or part of the United Kingdom uh, until really long after the Viking Age ended. So it was more, it was an earldom then, it wasn't a kingdom. Like no, no, the, the, no, they owed allegiance to uh, the king of Norway originally, and then later the king of Denmark. 
Oh, well, see, now there's another TV reference for all you people out there who watched The Last Kingdom. You just watched the movie that was like Seven Kings Must Die, and it was the king of King of Orkney, the king of Shetland, the king, like all of the Whoops. islands. It's like, no. <laughs> uh oh, we have to tell Bernard Cornwell he got that wrong. <laughs> oh no, he knows. He knows. When I when I interviewed him uh, after the the roundtable at Leeds, and uh, we did a email correspondence, and I I interviewed him for my blog, and that was one of the things that he said because uh, the question was, you know, how historical does historical fiction have to be? And he said, well, my I'm not a historian. My job is first and foremost to write a good story. <laughs> So he's and he, and he and he in the back of he to his credit in the back of his books, he puts where he deviates from real history and where he doesn't. And it's it's actually pretty it's very well done. So but yes, it's the oops, but he knows. <laughs> yes, but how many people read the bit at the back? I suppose you know that's that's always the <laughs> the difficult bit. And then the, <laughs> the title Seven Kings Must Die is better than two kings and five earls must die. <laughs> <laughs> Well, so what what drew you to Orkneyinga? What? Um, I think precisely that it's um, it's that weird intersection of let's, for the sake of argument, call them history and literature. <laughs> it's kind of neither one thing nor the other. Um, you know, it it's set in uh, this recognizable landscape with uh, places whose names still exist today. Um, but it, it's got lots of weird and wonderful stories in it as well, um, including one version of the, the, the Blood Eagle story, uh, the notorious Blood Eagle story. Um, it's got poisoned shirts. Um, it's got people going mad in a Neolithic burial mound. Um, it's got evil women. Um, it's got people with wonderful nicknames, you know, Thorfinn Skull Splitter, <laughs> who's given his name to a very strong beer that's uh, brewed there so you can split your skull in different ways <laughs> <I love that. laughs> um and so that that's kind of one part of the answer but the other part of the answer um is because i'm a bit of a nerd and uh it's of interest to me because there is no such thing as orkneyinga saga or at least there is no medieval manuscript which contains the complete saga, the way you you will find it in your Penguin Classics translation, or even in uh, your Eastlands Kvonrit edition, um, it parts of it survive in different manuscripts from very different periods. When you compare them, they're often quite different. Um, some parts of it only survive uh, in a uh, 16th century translation into Danish. <laughs> um, then other little snippets survive in uh, even later Icelandic manuscripts of people who are interested in the poetry. That's another thing I should have mentioned. There's a lot of poetry uh, in, in the saga. Um, so it has a bit of everything. It, it, it's a kind of complicated textual history, which I enjoy trying to work out. And I don't think it's sufficiently explained in existing editions and translations, which is why I'm, I'm working on this new translation. It's got good stories. It's got this kind of landscape that you can visit and recognize from the saga. Um, so, um, so it has everything, really. It sounds to me like you're maybe in the um, in the same camp as Jesse about Ail's saga that you know the archaeology that he did there, and it, it just the, the idea that 
there is there's real history in there there has to be I just doesn't it seems to me like it couldn't be as complex as all you're describing that and then it's just some complete fabrication that somebody makes no up. no uh, well, no I, I don't know specifically about Agil saga or, or but I think that's true of well there are many different saga genres as, as you know and and in some of them the sagas of Icelanders the king sagas um and Kate and other a few other saga genres are based on historical fact and the the interesting part is well you know can we identify that historical fact or can um how much you know we don't know we'll, we'll never know but it's fun to try and work out um on what basis these you know as i was saying earlier there's so many different things like genealogies poetry stories associated with the landscape all go into writing this saga it's not something that has just sprung from the author's brain just like that they're putting things together and in some cases with what i would say is historical intent um, whether or not they succeed is a different matter. I think it's the intent that's interesting. They're, they're actually trying to write about the past, I think. Um, that's what oh, the whole, <laughs> a, a huge proportion, not all of it by any means, but a huge proportion of medieval Icelandic literature is actually set in the past. And I think that's relatively unusual. And it's set in a historical past. It's set in their own past. Um, in the case of Egil Saga or other sagas of Icelanders in, in that period when um, Iceland was first settled and shortly thereafter. In the case of the King Sagas, um, you know, a, a kind of longer period going further back in time, but also closer to their own time. Um, so they were, for whatever reason, obsessed uh, with the past. So they were the kind of the original historians, really. They wanted to know about the past and the, they went about it with what tools they had. Um, and they didn't necessarily um, object to occasionally kind of uh, not so much inventing things, but just kind of working out how they think things were. I think that brings to mind something because I asked Jesse about this um, a little bit as far as with Iceland specifically, you know, but so many of this, all the saga literature that comes out of there, and it's like, why there, you know, it's like a complete backwater, you know, it's the uh, the opposite of what we normally think about where literary traditions develop, you know, it's not urban, it's not, you know, very literate, and all, et cetera, et cetera. And then he had a really interesting comment about them, um, you know, sort of this kind of frontier mentality, right? And you're going out and it kind of, it gets into your diaspora stuff too. It's like these people who go into someplace new and then kind of have to sort of define who they are now in this new place relative to where they came from yep. and all of that. And so it's, it's the process, like in the 19th century, right? With nationalism, it's the process yep. of myth-making and sort of defining who we are. Yeah. It's really interesting to me. No, very, I think that's very much the case. Um, but also, you know, it, it, I think it also relates to what I was talking about earlier, their, in, their interest, their interest in, in language and verbal art forms. Um, that's what most of their creativity went into, whether it's stories or poems or, or the law or genealogies or nicknames and all of it. It's all part of a package, really. Well, as we kind of get towards the end of an hour here, I, I mean, I, I was going to ask you what keeps the Viking interesting for you, but I think I think you've kind of said it here. <laughs> I haven't finished with it yet. 
Do you know how much longer? What do you mean? Well, before you, when, how much longer are you going to be working on this project? Oh, till I die. <laughs> You're never oh, oh, no, the, the project, you mean? Okay. Yeah. No, no, I suppose I've got another year or two to finish that, but um, then I'll find something else. Yeah. And, uh, <laughs> yeah. It's, it's, a, uh, go on. Uh, I do have a quick question about the Orkneys. I don't, I don't know if I'm remembering correctly. I did see a, an article a few years ago about a genetic study that was carried out I think it was in Scotland. I don't remember if it's the Orkney specifically, but the big ho hum was that the people on in these islands that were tested thought that they were mostly descended from Picts, but then it was revealed that they were all mostly Norwegian, and it kind of reshaped how we see the the settlement of of certain islands in Scotland. Um, and so, I, is it was it the Orkneys that where they did that, or was it? A well, no, was. Um, well, the study I'm thinking of sort of compare actually compared. The Northern Isles, so Orkney and Shetland, with the Western Isles, so the Hebrides, with with Iceland, just to kind of get some sense of what the balance is. I mean, I think, um, and and there were different proportions of Scandinavian or not Scandinavian people, and different proportions sometimes of men versus women having Scandinavian ancestry. But I think the whole, uh, you know, there is no such thing as a Pictish gene or a a Scandinavian gene, what you're looking at is patterns across Europe and, and there's a preponderance of certain kind of genes. And at that time they were comparing um, modern gene, the genes of people that live there today with the genes of people who live in Norway today or or, or wherever. And and it's it's not not straightforward. Um, I and the other thing I think of is islands in particular, I think are generally very well connected to the outside world. And I think there's probably more mobility um, to and from islands than there are people who kind of live a long way inland. So, um, but in insofar as we can say anything about the genetics of these places, there certainly is a, I think in the case of Orkney, it was something like 30% of the people tested, both men and women had uh, genes that were similar to people living in, in Norway at the time um so so yeah the, the you know it kind of fills out the picture a little bit these genetic studies but i don't think it's the the final word on anything i think we have to be a bit careful i mean uh, i i did one of these tests once and um, i discovered that i like many others is two percent neanderthal which i was very proud of actually i quite like to think of my neanderthal ancestry <laughs> <laughs> Those were the ones that were victorious, right? No, no, no they weren't. They weren't. <laughs> no. Oh, okay. <laughs> they got wiped, they got wiped out by the other guys. Oh. It's it's funny though because it's the on my website and on my social media, I get a lot of people who reach out asking me about you know, oh, I got my genetic testing done and I got this and this and and then they ask me questions and first of all, my my usual first question myself is, you know, what about what I'm putting out there? makes people think that I'm anything of an expert on this. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. Uh, so I actually found a, a good out of the box answer, especially when it, when it comes to genetic studies, which is to say it's a very new science it's very imprecise. And that's why it keeps changing. And so I wouldn't put too much, too much uh, salt into, into what you get from one of those tests. Plus, they only go out back a certain number of generations, you know, because uh, I'll get the people who are like, Oh, I'm related to Ragnar Lothbrok. And I'm like, good for <laughs> you. Um, 
Bad news. Well, the... He may not have existed. <laughs> <laughs> Well, the, the, the really good answer there, and I got this from a geneticist once, unfortunately, I've forgotten the percentage, but it's something extraordinarily high, that genetically speaking, we're about 90% equal to a banana. Oh, yeah, yeah. Well, that's like, uh, the, the one I really appreciated is I saw it was a, a documentary that showed that we're something like 94% genetically related to a chimpanzee. But what's yeah. even more interesting is that male humans and male chimpanzees are at like 96% when male humans and female humans are only like 94%. Now my numbers could be wrong because I'm just, but it yeah. was like, we're so human males and human chimpanzees are more genetically related to each other than human males <laughs> and human females. <laughs> uh, why does that not surprise me? <laughs> yeah, <right? laughs> <laughs> so, so is the genetic craze uh you know is a big deal over there i, I mean it is oh a yeah no it, it yeah it is very much um okay. it, um <laughs> I, I i do remember some years ago there was a program in which um they they were um, there was a time when uh, the easiest test to do was uh, y chromosome so men basically and and what their ancestry was and they tested this poor guy uh, who lived in the northeast of England and, and really, really, really wanted to be a Viking. And I don't know how much you know, but the um, at the time, any rate, uh, the idea was that you could tell Norwegian origin separately from Danish, but the Danish was very similar to to the Anglo-Saxon, the English. Um, and this this guy wanted a Norwegian ancestry, um, but turned out he had this kind of Danish Anglo-Saxon into uh, gene ancestry, which you can't tell apart, and and he, he kind of burst into tears because he he so wanted to be a Viking, <laughs> and he didn't realize that the Danes were Vikings too. <laughs> he was he could easily have been a Viking <laughs> in his ancestry. But anyway, if you go back a thousand years, you know the Y chromosome, it's just one straight line back and how many other ancestors have you had in the last thousand years apart from your great great I don't know how many times grandfather well that's interesting to hear because I always think of it as kind of a quintessentially American preoccupation because unless you're Native American we're all from somewhere else you know we've got like the ultimate diverse mutt society here and so you know people are interested in sort of trying to figure out where they came from um, which I think is kind of a natural well uh, that's true here as well. Um, until about, oh, I'm not very good with numbers, but 16 or 18,000 years ago, this island was covered in ice. So everybody's an immigrant to Britain. <laughs> um, whatever, whatever people try and have you believe otherwise. Uh, and that's the human condition really moving around the world. Well, so that story that you said oh, about this guy who wants to be a Viking so so badly, I mean, that kind of, I think, probably last question I have for you is, um, to what do you attribute this lasting popularity of these people? I mean, it's just this juggernaut that never seems to stop. Um, different things to different people. I mean, it, yes, it's a juggernaut. On one hand, it has been going at least since the 19th century. Um, on the other hand, you know, I've been around long enough that I, I can see that it's taken off in a big way in the last 20 or 30 years, and, and it wasn't quite so big before then, just in the number of students I get, you know, wanting wanting to study it when, you know, when I first started, I didn't get so many students. So, um, 
Yeah, undoubtedly there are people attracted by what you call the knuckle dragger something or other. <laughs> um, I had a, a colleague once who, who wrote uh, famously, the Vikings were ruffians, but they were cultured ruffians. <laughs> so some of us like that cultured bit, you know, the poetry, the art, the sagas, um, you know, it's all part of the same thing in a way. So maybe it is that combination of, on one hand, really quite basic things which attract certain people and then the slightly more, I don't know, complex or sophisticated or different or interesting things that attract other people and then of course there the there's Norse mythology which we've hardly touched on um, <laughs> which and and the in the end it does also boil down to really good stories um, whether it's the sagas or the story of the mead of poetry or any of those other stories I mean you know that's the wonderful thing about teaching old Norse is you know watching students jaws drop as they read these these stories which I think are just some of the best stories ever written yeah I heard in a, uh, another podcast that you did that you're a fan of the Lord of the Rings <gasps> no not quite oh. I was <laughs> oh, you were past tense well, oh well <laughs> the reason I bring it up is uh the uh, the cultured Rufian uh yes. aragorn is a is a good example of that right because he can go around and kill orcs and be a rufian but he yeah. can also be very soft and recite poetry to arwen so i mean it's Absolutely, kind of that yes <laughs> that dynamic. that's well yeah when i was 14 then he was my hero of course and and <laughs> no uh the reason i said i, w I was is because i think it was the year i was 14 i read the lord of the rings five times in one year i loved it so much and it certainly set me on this track that I've ended up on now but um, a few years ago when when the films first came out I thought I'd have a go at reading it again to see how I felt about it now and uh, I couldn't get all the way through it was too boring <laughs> <laughs> wow so you know but that's okay we know I, I I appreciate the fact that I loved it when I was a teenager and I appreciate that it sparked my interest in, you know, because he was, of course, a professor um, who knew his old English and his old Norse um, and kind of set me off in this direction. So good for him. Yeah, but the uh, the the real Norse sagas spoiled you oh, they're, because they're just they're so exciting that they made Lord of the Rings look tame. <laughs> yeah, I think so. I think that's a fair comment. <laughs> well, there's something inherently interesting in a culture that can, you know, at the same time, raid monasteries and steal things and enslave people and do what are, you know, by all accounts, terrible things. And yet, you know, try to set up a proto-democracy and, you know, do something fairly sophisticated like that. I mean, it's just the, the dichotomy just like makes it interesting inherently, I think. Yeah, no, I think I agree with you there. <laughs> well, I think that's probably a good place as any to end. CJ, do you have anything else to ask? No, that's really fun conversation. Yeah, it's great. So thank you again so much for doing this. Really appreciate it. Well, it's great to talk to you both and, and get the two, two slightly different perspectives from the historian and the novelist. That's really interesting. So well done on coming together in this way. Yeah, well, like the Vikings, you know, we sort of uh, figure that this is fate because, you know, we have this interest together, but we also are born on the same day. So oh, yeah. <laughs> We're birthday buddies. Yeah, yeah. Right. The Norns have the norns have woven our fate together so. may i ask which day september 18th 
oh no, doesn't mean anything to me. Sorry. <laughs> I, it's uh, actually the, the wait. I, oh, I, I've forgotten what it was. It was, there's was something Viking about it. Like the, for the, the battle of Hastings, like it's like the lead up, right? It's kind of the, it's a fall campaign, right? There yeah, might have been uh, something on that day, yeah. Well, yeah, it's it's closer. Like it's only a week away from the uh, the Battle of Stamford Bridge. Yeah. So probably right. it's, it's Harold. That was Crossing. the twenty fifth, twenty fifth of September, wasn't yep. it? Just, yeah, yeah. Right. Yeah. And so yeah. every year, the the Jorvik Viking Center on their social media puts out for two weeks leading up to the event, they put out these little things of like this happened on this day and this said and i remember september 18th was was something i mean it wasn't super exciting but it was like oh yeah my birthday like this guy died great <laughs> <laughs> the ships of harold the last viking showed up on the shore yeah. <laughs> so all right well thank you so much have a great okay. rest of your evening uh, we've got we've got an exciting weekend coming up of course with the coronation oh yes oh, that's yeah. right King Charles. Absolutely. I'm sure there'll be a billion Americans watching that. <laughs> yeah. Oh, well, maybe um, <laughs> them rather than me, but yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we'll, we'll edit that part out. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> yeah. My mom's committed to watching it. So there's one. <laughs> <laughs> okay. All right. Okay. Bye bye. Nice to see you. Thank you. Bye. bye.